Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat low interest rates and rising inflation and get you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And a very happy new year to you all in 2022. I hope you had a relaxing break. Very warm welcome to season four. We're really looking forward to an exciting year here at Steps to Investing. There's lots that we're going to be doing. There's a new website that's going to be launched, which is going to be full of loads of great free content for you to peruse. There's also the new investing, Get Investing magazine, which is out right now. So please click on the link in the bio. Today, we're also going to, because of this, we're also going to, we're going to chat with one of our regular journalists as well, Ed Bauscher, um, about his article, which is in the magazine, and it's on becoming a resilient investor. The magazine is, its focus is a pension special. So we're sort of looking at strategies that are, that are good for the long term and can get you to that, that all important and usually the most important financial goal, really, which is retirement. Before all of that, though, we've got the news in companies and markets, and we're going to have a little run through what investors have been buying in 2021, and then see what AJ Bell's top analyst, Leif Caliph, is thinking about for different asset classes and how they might do and things to think about in 2022. All right, let's start off with the report from Callistone, which look at their funds network and they look at what UK investors have been putting their cash into in terms of the flows, the the, the money that's flowing in and out of different funds, different sectors of the market to see what's what we sort of like and what, what, we, what we're wanting to invest in. So it's always interesting and we've got December's in so we can now see what the calendar year has has done and it's quite an interesting really. I, th- I think we saw December really sh- investors shrugging off these concerns that they might have had about the Omicron variant. They added 1 billion in new cash which was double the amount in November and it takes the 2021 net total to a record of 142 billion over the time that Callistone have been looking at this data. And I think 2015 was the last high point, and that saw 11.6 billion of inflows over the year. So quite a bit more than then. I think, you know, um, uh, investors are probably considering those low interest rates and high inflation. Naturally, we had a look at what was popular, and it seemed the UK equity market, so shares in UK companies, was very much not popular. It was the worst geographically, and UK-focused funds shed 1.1 billion throughout 2021. So it was a net outflow for UK-focused funds. Ed Glynn, who's head of markets at Callistone, mentions the economic wobbles in Q4, political instability, rising interest rates, Brexit chaos, and then COVID restrictions, which were all sort of getting together and and creating quite a sour note for investors in UK shares. Winning the popularity contest in 2021 was global equity funds as investors have gone quite broad. They took in £13.4 billion and £6 and every £10 going into global funds was in global ESG funds. So investors are really wanting that sustainability focused strategy, finding companies that are that have those good credentials when they're being measured against things like the environment, against uh, what they're doing socially and, and, and also the way they govern the, the company itself. Also popular were EM strategies as well. They saw a record £2.2 billion of inflows there. Bonds came back into favour as well to some extent and uh, they saw $6.6 billion added during that time, particularly during the months where investors were were kind of freaking out about COVID. So when we saw a, a pop in Delta or we saw suddenly, you know, Omicron uh, emerging, bonds that sort of the traditional safe haven really uh, certainly rallied off, off that news. All right, let's get on to what AJ Bell's top analyst, Leith Calif, has been saying and thinking about the different asset classes 
and how, you know, things to think about really for 2022. You know, it's quite hard to get these things accurate. Of course, there are so many factors that that will affect an overall asset class. So it, it's a bit of a steer for things to look out for when you're rooting around for funds in those in those various different asset classes. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a little look at shares, at bonds, at cash, at UK property, both commercial and residential, and at gold as well. So let's start with shares. And I think the threat here in particular last at the back end of last year was Omicron. That was weighing on markets a little bit, particularly for those businesses that are overly exposed to the misery of COVID, things like travel and retail and hospitality, they really receive both barrels there. But these concerns seem to be shrugged off for the moment now. It seems our vaccines are doing the job and they're keeping the infected out of ICUs. Big pro for equities for shares is the fact that they can they can offer this the, these returns that potentially beat inflation they, they can give you inflation busting returns and that's because companies have the ability to to raise their prices uh, ahead of inflation and you know higher prices higher profits that should translate into into higher share prices the threat of course you know in a similar vein actually is rising interest rates which you know are used obviously to combat inflation and um you know ordinarily if rates are rising it means that central banks think economies are quite strong and that should be good for corporate profits as as i sort of mentioned before so in turn share prices but conversely higher rates also increase the debt burden on companies as well and that puts pressure on profits so you know that that can bring down the valuations of of share prices particularly in areas of the market that are quite highly valued already and one in particular is the US market you know this has run very well it was very much a beneficiary you know its companies were beneficiaries lots of them were beneficiaries during covid and it's an enormous market you know out of all the shares you can buy out there US shares represent two thirds of the global market. So when something happens there, the ripples are wide and and are felt, you know, around the globe. Other dangers to the stock market you might need to think about could be runaway inflation. You know, it depends how central banks manage to control that. Flare ups in in geopolitical tensions. Ed's going to discuss a couple of a couple of potential conflicts that that at least markets will think about. And of course, any new COVID variants that might emerge that our vaccines, you know, won't deal with. All right, let's get on to bonds. And, you know, here, I think, you know, the traditional relationship is that when we see base rates, the, you know, the base central bank interest rate r- start to rise, then other bond prices have to rise in lockstep as well, rising uh, you know, a rising rate of interest that you're paying on a bond means the price is falling. So it depends how quickly it kind of goes. But generally, yeah, rising rate environment is not great for bonds. And I think, you know, looking at the, we don't know when the precise timing of all the interest rate rises will be, but it seems the direction of travel is pretty clear from central banks. They're going to want to take a slow and low approach, not to, so they don't shock the bond markets. But, you know, I don't think there's any doubt tighter monetary policy is on the way and and all the QE programs, all the money that they've been throwing as well at markets, you know, are going to be removed as well. Unless, of course, there's a big surgence, resurgence in the pandemic, which could, could um, you know, slow economic growth. It could pull back inflation. It could, it could cause central bankers to say, oh, OK, halt this. And, you know, maybe we won't raise rates for the moment, pause them, whatever it is. So that could be good for the bond market too. But, you know, for many years now, there's been very low interest rates. There's been, you know, ongoing QE programs. So this very loose monetary policy has, has, has sort of been gotten used to by by bond, mar- bond markets. And, you know, that's why they've been so twitchy over the last year, not really knowing is it, you know, will they, won't they type thing in terms of, of what's going to happen with monetary policy. So it will be a paradigm shift, really, this this tightening cycle um, after a, a sort of a 
decade or so of, of much looser policy. Inflation is also the big risk to the global economy presently. And even, you know, transitory bouts of inflation are pretty bad for for the income streams you receive from bonds, which are fixed. So um, uh, if it carries on and, it, and it's a bit more persistent, that's going to be even worse. So I think that's a sort of lingering worry for bonds. But, you know, as I said, COVID could research and, you know, monetary policy, the, the tightening of it could be put on hold. So in that situation, bonds could do okay but it would be a sort of stay of execution rather than a presidential pardon um so you know at some point the extraordinary sort of monetary policy we've seen over the past decade it's going to have to come back to some form of normal cash well uh you know interest rates are rising that's definitely true so you should you should hopefully be getting a better rate on your savings However, inflation is very much predicted to be significantly higher for, uh, you know, some years above above that rate. So that means the value of your savings is reducing. So, you know, aside from absolutely essential rainy day fund in case, you know, something happens, three to six months of costs is, is usually what's recommended. Perhaps no more than that. And think about putting any extra savings to work in the markets on to uk property so we start with the residential it's it's kind of hard to sort of get a proper read on the uk housing market there's a lot of distortions that have been created recently by low interest rates and sort of government pandemic responses etc i think what seems certain is that next year is not going to be anywhere near as good as the house prices over the past 12 months they were sort of turbocharged by things like the stamp duty holiday by changing working patterns, ultra-low mortgage rates, things like that. While growth will moderate, it's it's probably not going to disappear altogether, though. There is this perpetual imbalance between the supply of houses that's coming onto the market and the demand for them in the UK. So that's always going to be a positive for prices. Higher interest rates could be a slight headwind for the property market, but I think, you know, I think the figures were, you know, 65% of the UK own a home, 35% of those own them outright. So it's 30% of mortgages and then half of those are on five-year fixed. So the knock-on effect of higher interest rates shouldn't be enormous in general when you look at the UK economy. By the time people are coming to remortgaging anyway, higher wages will probably have, have taken up some some of that slack anyway. From a commercial side of things, still a great deal of uncertainty over it's you know the prospects here of office space and the demand for it wide-scale hybrid working is still in its infancy and you know it remains to be seen to what extent office space you know is going to be desirable for uk plc i think where it will be in big demand is some of these big corporations that are looking for sustainably built spaces really that enable them to lower their carbon footprint you know, and and perhaps get those ESG scores looking really good, and and therefore being able to accept some of the uh, you know enormous amounts of money that's that's sort of coming into sustainable strategies and that kind of investment. Lower unemployment as well, and and economic growth. You know, stronger economic growth should help underpin the sort of demand for office retail space, and. Also, the continued growth of e-commerce after this this quantum leap of the pandemic, it should mean there'd be more demand for logistical hubs. So gold, the sort of classic inflation hedge, certainly with the resurgence of inflation that we've seen, it certainly put a pep in the step of the gold bugs. Though, really, when you look at the precious metal, it's failed to shine really since the early days of the pandemic when it topped $2,000 an ounce. And I think part of that problem is the fact that interest rates are also expected to rise and gold doesn't pay any income. It's not an income producing asset. So it looks less attractive when you compare it against interest bearing assets like bonds or cash. Uh, you know, it is a safe haven. It's sort of known as a safe haven, but don't be fooled by that in the sense that it still could be quite volatile. I mean, when you look at the prices between 2011 and 2015, 
investors had to stomach a 40% fall during that period. So it's, you know, that doesn't strike me as something that's sort of safe. Um, you know, and, and all, it's not an asset for the faint-hearted, basically. Works best, really, as a bit of insurance that acts a bit differently to other assets. You know, price should move a bit differently to mainstream assets. So, you know, when you're looking at a part of your portfolio, I mean, I think Ed will talk about this a little bit, and, um, you know, maybe not more than 5 or 10% of your portfolio, I think. All right, let's move on to markets and start things off with America. We saw yesterday, actually, some notes came out from its central bank, the Federal Reserve, which were deemed to be what we would call hawkish, you know, um, tighter monetary policies seem to be on the way, those, those kind of uh, tools that they use to sort of cool economies. And it's putting investors a bit on edge. They, the policymakers are sort of saying, well, you know, jobs market, which is one of the things that we look at, is looking pretty healthy. Lots of people are in jobs. Employment is, unemployment is low. But the other thing that we look at, inflation, that's looking looking pretty juicy, really. So we so all of that points to tighter, more hawkish monetary policy. And um, it, it means that they may raise rates. This is what investors are thinking, that they will raise rates. They'll remove the QE programs much faster, much quicker than, than they've already guided for, than anticipated, which always changes the equation in markets of how, you know, shares are valued, other assets are valued. And and the other thing is it kind of leads to these worries that the central bank will just overreact, really. There'll be a policy misstep. They'll slam the brakes on the economy a bit too quickly and it will choke off this nascent recovery. Now, as we'll hear Ed sort of explain in his eerily accurate predictions about which stocks are at risk, tech stocks very much have borne the brunt of this today. They promise cash into the future. So when, when you know, rates rise, inflation is rising, that cash in the future becomes less valuable. So they tend to sort of drop uh, in terms of how investors see them in, in, in terms of value. This, as we were saying earlier, you know, the, given that US markets are so such a big part of the global, the global um, you know, shares, it's traveled across the pond. Those, those ripples have traveled across the pond and Asian markets were trading a bit lower on these worries. There's also concerns there still about the Chinese property market Although for the moment, Evergrande, their big gigantic property group, seems to have sort of staved off collapse for the moment. In Europe as well, we saw bond prices rise and a bit of selling off in, in tech stocks on that news. But given that Omicron fears are fading in Europe, there are some buying into sectors which are a bit more economically sensitive, such as, such as banks and energy. In the UK, we saw airlines rising sharply as international travel seems a bit more likely. So we saw the share prices of Wizz Air and EasyJet sort of do quite well. All in all, the stock 600 is up six points to 489. The FTSE 100 is up 95 points to 7,468. The S&P is actually lower over the two weeks, down 25 points to 4,701. And the Nikkei 225 has followed suit down 311 points to 28,488. Okay, let's get on to a couple of company stories before we have the interview with Ed. And we've got to start with Apple and its meteoric achievement really becoming the first company to surpass the $3 trillion market cap valuation. And, you know, the success really, that, that, that value is really largely down to its iPhone, launched 15 years ago this month. During that time frame, we've seen Apple share price rise a whopping 5,800%. I wish I had bought more apple shares um you know are they could they face demise well of course i mean you can never say never with these things you know recently it's been hit by supply chain issues like a lot of companies and chip shortages in particular and that means that you know when people are replacing their phones they they, they might have gone elsewhere as well so it could be lost sales rather than um, sales that have been kicked down the road however i mean they have an incredible incredible track record of developing very successful and profitable products really and it has an enormous balance sheet of cash which makes it very nimble to explore any areas that it seems that it deems business savvy so expect more star products perhaps a couple of areas might be areas like virtual reality kits 
as we see the metaverse ramp up over the coming years, as well as electric cars as well. To me, I think one of their interesting ones to see how they kind of perform will be in their Apple TV subscription service. It's not a big part of their revenues, but they're obviously pouring a lot of money into it. And we're in the midst of a global streaming wars amongst those kind of providers like Netflix and Disney et al., and it's a fierce fight and a lot of billions and hundreds of billions have been are being spent on 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 this so high quality content is going to be paramount and um it'll be interesting to see how they sort of perform the other story i want to talk to you a bit about is next which has sort of become a bit of a crown jewel in the high street kind of stocks here in the eight weeks to christmas day it's full price sales were up 20 percent in comparison to pre-pandemic levels so it its management sort of came out and guided that it it would be 70 million pounds ahead of management expectations the sales would as a result and therefore its pre-tax profits has been raised 22 million to 822 million it also said that next year its sales are going to be up another seven percent so it seems to be doing really well and as such it's handing out a special dividend so you know companies usually pay out regular dividends and then if they get a big you know bumper profits maybe they've sold a bit of the company and they've they've suddenly got a load more cash then they can they can hand out some extras as well so some nice little tasty christmas treats there for investors and what's interesting about this is it kind of contrasts the general high street story really there aren't many bricks and mortar businesses that are that are doing this that are doling out such treats Shoppers are pretty loyal to the brand. That's part of the reason. It's also been managed very well through COVID. And it has this exceptional online business, really, that's been propping up any gaps that have been created in its physical stores with staff shortages. Okay, let's move on to the interview then with Ed Bauscher. Back to our latest mag, which is a pension special. And as such, what we're doing is really thinking about long-term approaches to this really, you know, one of the most important financial goals you can have in terms of how it will impact your life later on. So it means sensibility is not unwise in any investing strategy. And in his latest piece, Ed Bauscher discusses the idea of being a resilient investor and the importance of preserving wealth as much as growing it. So to discuss it, I'd like to welcome back onto the pod, Ed Bauscher. Ed, welcome. Thanks for having me again, Marcus. Shall we start with what you mean by this concept of a resilient investor? Yeah, it's the idea um, that this is an investor who will probably um, perform okay year after year and will avoid or hope to avoid some of the big losses uh, in the markets uh, that you get uh, every so often. So avoiding maybe the sectors or the countries that, that have a big fall. Um, so that's the idea, the idea of preserving your wealth as well as growing it. Okay, because how hard is it for us to beat the market? Well, it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, so the active managers, the guys in the city on Wall Street who are paid lots of money to do better than the market, and some of them do, but the, the challenges they face, well, the first challenge is that obviously they charge more money for their services. So they've got to do well enough, really, uh, to beat the market and justify their charges. And the other problem that these active guys face, these active professionals, is that they're under pressure over the short term. So if they do badly over just the last three or six months, uh, some observers will start to get a bit, you know, a bit nervous, some of the financial advisors. And if they're doing badly over a year, two or three years, that nervousness only rises and you know when you actually look at some of the really successful long-term investors they have bad years or bad couples of years and so for an active manager uh, if he really wants to do well over the long term he should be able to ride through um, those sticky patches and it can be hard for, for them to do that given the way the market works so I guess those are the are the big two challenges for the professionals for the amateurs like you and me Marcus or, this, or the private <laughs> investors I'll, I'll say I'm a professional but I'm a private investor I'm on my own um, we have the advantage that we don't have that short-term pressure or we shouldn't at least I shouldn't worry if I had a bad 2019 
no worries. And I can see why that happened. It shouldn't be a problem. I'm focused on investing over the next 10 or 20 years. So I don't have to worry about these short term considerations. And, you know, I can also look for bargains right at the smaller end of the market, companies that are valued at 10, 20, 30, 40 million pounds. The big active fund managers just can't really invest in those kind of stocks because they can't get big enough stakes uh, to really make a difference to their fund's performance. If you're managing a fund that's worth two billion quid, uh, investing in a company that's worth 30 million quid doesn't really make a lot of sense. But for private investors, that's not a problem. So that's a, those are advantages that the private investor has. Equally, of course, many private individuals don't have the time to, to look for individual stocks that might beat the market. And, and they don't have the skills, perhaps, some of them, or, or the temperament either. So it's not easy for the professional. It's not easy for the private investor. And that's why many, many people go for the passive funds that will always match the market. OK, so then I suppose the next question would be then, why, are, why is everyone so obsessed with beating the market? I mean, presumably there's a sort of intellectual challenge that people feel like they, they like to meet and they like to sort of do it from that perspective. I'm assuming that's one of the reasons. I think it is. I mean, it's, it is really driven by the fact by this huge rise in passive investing, you know, 30 years ago, the index trackers, the ETFs, you know, they, they had a very small amount of the market. Um, and and for, for any of your listeners who don't know, you know, the passive funds, the idea is you invest in a FTSE 100 passive fund or a FTSE 100 ETF. If the FTSE 100 goes up by 10%, your passive fund should go up by roughly 10% too. And buying these passive funds make a lot of sense. They're cheap. They're easy. You don't have to spend much time. And so people then say, well, why bother, you know, do active investing? Why bother do stock picking? And you can only then seemingly really justify um, stop picking if you think you can go and beat the market. What is the point if you can't do better than the, the, the FTSE 100's 10% rise? Uh, well, then just go and invest in the FTSE 100. That's been the argument that's really become more and more prominent in the market over the last 30 years and people looking at active managers who aren't beating the market. What on earth is the point? Well, that's the argument anyway. Yeah, and presumably they think that they, that quite a lot of us would like to think, you know, we especially if you enjoy business, that you could maybe find that next Apple and therefore invest a relatively small amount of money in a share and then fun, suddenly find, you know, riches untold when it reaches a three trillion dollar market cap. Exactly. And, you know, and if you if you let's say, you know, in 2010, you'd let's say you had 100 grand, you know, to invest in the stock market in 2010. I think you, you probably didn't have that kind of money, I'm guessing, back in 2010, Mark, because I think you, you were a young man then. But uh, if you did, you know, and you put 90 grand into the FTSE and, and 10 grand into Apple because you had this insight into Apple, then overall you would have beaten the market humongously because Apple's done way, way better than the market. No problem at all. Okay, so then in your piece, you mention a bit of a legendary investor, Irvin Kahn, who said that investing is about preserving wealth more than anything else. So I'm assuming he doesn't mean avoiding taking risk or, you know, actually investing in the stock markets itself. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, what you're hinting at, yes, if you, if Irvin Kahn says you've got to preserve your wealth. And so if you take that to its logical extreme, you say, well, surely the best way to preserve your wealth is to put all your money in cash. That's the lowest risk. And don't just bo don't bother with the stock market at all. And that's not what Irving Kahn is saying. And it's not what I'm saying when I talk about resilient investing, because, of course, yes, cash is low risk, but it's it, there is still some risk. Because if inflation picks up, I think we'll probably be talking about inflation in a few minutes, but if inflation picks up, cash doesn't actually deliver such great returns and it may not be a great place to put your money. And that's what drives so many people into the stock market into the first place. So, yes, do invest money in the stock market, at least if you have a reasonable time horizon, five years or longer. Do invest money in the stock market, but try and avoid the stocks or the areas that will fall the most. If you got badly burned by the 2000 stock market crash, it would have taken you quite a while probably to recover from those losses. So try and think about preserving your wealth as well as growing your wealth. It's like trying to find a happy balance between the two. And I'd say that thinking about preserving your wealth is particularly important for people who are older or have relatively short time horizon 
horizons because they may not have the time uh, the investment time to recover from those losses. If, say, you're 50, well, I'm 54, okay? So you could argue that I really shouldn't be thinking longer than 10 years for investments now because I might retire, say, at 64. So therefore, if I was hit by a big crash now, it might take me most of those 10 years to make my losses back. So you could argue it's more relevant to me than to someone who's, say, 30 or 34. The only caveat, though, is when you're looking at someone like me, I may potentially now live, thanks to the wonders of medicine, till 94 to 100. So I think even now, even at my age, I still need to think fairly long term. But anyway, as I'm saying, thinking about balancing the two, about preserving and growing. So yes, putting some money into the stock market, but just being a bit more careful. And also, because you're focusing on preserving your wealth, actually don't get obsessed about beating the market. This is where perhaps you need to reject this investment orthodoxy, this orthodoxy we've had for the last 20 years. Either go for a, a tracker and match the market or go individual, but do it on your own, but only if you can beat the market. You know, the view is if you run your own portfolio and you are behind the market, that's bad. You shouldn't have done it. You should have put your money into a tracker or an ETF. But I would say, actually, let's say the market grows by 10%, your portfolio by, grows by 5%. That's not necessarily a disaster. It's not necessarily a mistake if you were following a strategy where preserving your wealth was quite a large component. So you've got 5% growth at lower risk than in putting all your money into the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 in the US. So I just think that's the extra part of the picture you have to put in. It's not just market or beating the market, it's market beating the market or trying to invest at a fairly low risk and preserving your wealth. Okay, so have you got some tips really, some areas to look out for when you're thinking about investing more resiliently? Yeah, and obviously this is this is the tough bit. It's really easy to talk about these things in theory, but to actually look at them in practice and get them right in practice, of course, it is where it gets difficult. So I said, you know, you try and avoid the areas that could be vulnerable to a big crash. And I think the area at the moment in the markets, the global market that's clearly most vulnerable is the US technology stocks. Partly the, the big ones, you know, the... Uh, the Amazons and such like, but also I think even more so ones that are, are a bit smaller, not necessarily small companies, but not as big, not as well known to people like Shopify, uh, which is a company that um, provides sort of online shops in inverse commas for independent retail shops. If you're an independent retailer, you can easily set up a website, use these guys, Shopify, great business done really well, market cap of about $150 billion. So not titchy, but perhaps overvalued. And there are plenty of other US stocks like that, which I think also look very overvalued to me. We've seen some quite significant share price falls in this area over the last six weeks, two months, around there. Uh, and I think we could well see more share price falls in this area. So if I'm following this resilient strategy, that's the area I would avoid or at very least reduce my exposure to and think about each individual stock very carefully. Is perhaps when I'm looking at an individual technology stock, say Apple, perhaps there's a reason why Apple might survive and be more resilient than many other technology stocks around it. You know, Apple is profitable. It's got a great track record. It's making a lot of profit, generating a lot of cash. That makes means it's more resilient than some other technology stock that's never made a profit. It's all about, you know, what the company might achieve in 10 years time. And those stocks can, can fall a lot when, when the market mood changes. Ed, just on that point as well, and especially in a rising rate environment, am I right in saying that? Absolutely. That's a really important point, Marcus. So you're, you're dead right. Um, we are, everyone's expecting interest rates to rise over the next couple of years. It's just a question of how much. And the reason why rising rates hits technology stocks, or most technology stocks, is if we think about that stock that isn't expected to make a profit for, let's say, five years. So you're investing for profits in five, 10 years' time. So analysts in the city work out the value today of those profits in five or 10 years time. And they do that. They basically say it's going to be $100 million profits in 2027. 
what's it going to be what's that worth now in 2022 and they use interest rates so you know if, if the if the base rates half a percent they say 0.5 percent interest rates so 0.5 percent a year over five years compounded that's how much the 2027 profits are worth in 2022 but if interest rates rise from 0.5 percent to three percent they reduce those profits in value by three percent compounded for five years and so those profits in 2022 the value of those profits in 2022 uh fall a fair bit because interest rates are, are rising. I should just add, I mean, the analysts, they don't just look at interest rates, they also look at the likelihood of the company achieving those profits. So they apply a much bigger discount than just the interest rate, but a higher interest rate increases the discount and reduces the valuation of future profits for a technology company. So it's, it's a really, a really important point. Think about, you only think about diversifying, of course, that can help. Um, and so, you know, that's the classic one, which people always advise private investors to think about. Um, but it, it does help if you're not 100% invested in any sector or any type of company, because at least maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe US technology isn't the area that's most vulnerable to a fall. Maybe it's, you know, off the top of my head, uh, European, European banks. And so I've not avoided European banks, as I don't think um, they're, they're vulnerable. I've got some money at European banks, but at least if I've diversified and European banks aren't a particularly big part of my portfolio, then I won't suffer too much if European banks prove to be the really rotten area over the next couple of years. So that's another thing to think about. Another one is to pick, if you're individually stock picking, to pick what are known as quality stocks. So these are strong businesses and businesses that should do well pretty much regardless of the economy, how the economy is doing, probably because they have really strong consumer brands. So someone like Diageo, which has Johnny Walker whiskey and lots of other great um, alcohol brands, there should be a reason about of resilience in that business. And then quality stocks, as well as the strong brands, the strong franchises, if you like, they're also strong financially. Um, they've got good balance sheets. And when they invest extra money in their business, they tend to get very good returns on that investment. So those kind of quality companies, I would argue, are more resilient than many other parts of the market. They may not shoot the lights out, but they probably won't fall as much as other stocks if markets do get choppy. Um, and it's, so you could go and pick some quality stocks yourself you know, well-known ones, things like Diageo, Unilever, Burberry, I'm not saying anything particularly revelatory there, mentioning those stocks, or you can go for funds that particularly focus on that area of the market. And then I guess going back to diversification, but not just saying diversify your choice of shares or your choice of funds invested in equities, but think about diversifying into other assets as well. So, you know, hold a bit of money in cash, even with the risk of inflation. Think about um, bonds, government bonds, corporate bonds. I mean, in fairness, they will get hit inevitably if interest rates rise, um, but their falls shouldn't be as big as, as some equities in a, in, a, in, a, in a troubled market. So it gives you some diversification. Gold is another um, obvious one. I mean, you know, it's hard to predict how the gold price will move. It moves in mysterious ways, but there have at least been several instances over the years where gold has provided some protection when stock markets are falling. The point about gold, it doesn't move in a straight line with the stock market. So it gives you a bit of a diversification there. Some people might argue that going into crypto gives you some diversification too, the investing in the likes of Bitcoin and, and so on. For me, that's too risky. It's not an area I know a lot about. I'm not going to go near it, but I know some people would say it gives diversification. Okay, good stuff. So, well, let's have a look at some of your fun picks, actually, that you've thought would be quite good for a resilient investor. You start off with Personal Assets Trust. So what's this about? Yes, so this is a, a nice old-fashioned uh, investment trust, um, been around a long, long time. And the thing about Personal Assets Trust is it never invests all your money, 100% of the money in the stock market. And that 
I'm sure would frustrate some people. They say, well, you know, I want to I want to get all my money in the stock market, personal assets. So let's reduce the risk and also put some money um, into um, into bonds and maybe cash as well. And they very much focus on the risk of losing money rather than volatility. Um, before Christmas, about 41 percent of the market was involved in was invested in stocks and shares. They included some interesting American ones, Microsoft and Visa. So they did have some exposure to arguably some of the slightly racier parts of the market, but they also had 50% in cash and bonds and they had some money in gold as well. And the point is, if you go back to 2009 with the financial crisis, this trust has risen every year except 2013 and 2018. And in those years, the falls were only small. So you're getting more consistent growth, less wishing around up and down. And the growth has been 8.4% a year over that period, where the FTSE All Share, or FTSE All Share has grown by 10.7% a year over that period. So if you'd had a, a FTSE All Share index tracker, there are not many of those, but a few, um, you'd have done better than the Personal Assets Trust. But the Personal Assets Trust would say that growth, its growth would have been at lower risk than the FTSE tracker and actually certainly at lower risk than the S&P 500. So that's that's one way of, of getting a bit of resilience in. And, and, you know, even in the equities, they're at least partly thinking about quality stocks. You know, Microsoft particularly is, I would argue, definitely a quality stock. You know, it's got products like Microsoft Office, um, which aren't going to go away. Um, and then, you know, Azure and its exposure to the cloud, lots of other sort of business um, IT products that are really embedded in how companies run their businesses. And so those are products that are unlikely to um, perform poorly over the next sort of 10 years. So they've got strong products and also that strong financial backing that people look for in a quality stock. So personal assets trusts want to lower the risk. So they say, we're going to put some money into equities and that might, a lot of that money is going to go into the quality equities. And then we're going to reduce the risk further by going into cash, into bonds, into gold. So that's one. Another one is the Finsbury Growth and Income Investment Trust. And the, the difference between it and personal assets is it's investing in the quality stocks and then it's not bothering with the cash, the gold and the bonds, uh, if, if that makes sense. So I guess it's it's higher risk than the personal assets. But I would argue reducing the risk a bit from the type of stocks it invests in. So the Unilevers, the Burberries, the Diageos that I was talking about um, just a couple of minutes ago. And it, this trust, it only invests in 24 stocks. So you're not getting diversification there and you're getting 100% exposure uh, to equities, but it's focusing on the quality stocks. I should also say it's not had a great performance over the last year or so. It's done much better over the last five or 10 years. If you look on the web, some people will say the fund manager, a guy called Nick Train, who's very well known, good track record. There are people who say, oh, Nick Train, he's had it now. He did really well. His golden time is over. Move on, go elsewhere. You never know. They may be right. Um, but I think more likely, actually, this trust will will recover and actually didn't do too badly over the last year, just not as well as many others. And it will actually continue to deliver good, relatively low risk performance. Um, so it's a good way to get a bit of resilience. OK, and then you also you've got gold in there as well, haven't you? Yes. So, you know. If you put, if I'm, you want to put some gold in your portfolio, you know the old-fashioned option is to go and buy some gold coins and, and gold bars, and you know that's fine if you're not worried about about the, getting them stolen or or paying the costs of a, of a vault. But another option is to invest in a, a gold fund, or, or strictly speaking, they're called an ETC, exchange traded commodity, and this is a cheap and easy way to get some gold into your portfolio. These funds, they they buy the gold. Um, they stick it in a vault, uh, and then as the gold price rises or falls, the value of your ETC rises or falls, and the charges are, are, are very low. The particular one I mentioned in the article, the iShares Physical Metals Physical Gold ETC, or the, the ticker, if you want to look it up, is SGLN. That's SGLN, giving you exposure to the gold price, annual charge of 0.12%. Now, just to be clear, do not 
do not go and stick 50% of your portfolio in gold or 100% of your portfolio in gold. It's, it's something to give you some diversification. You know, don't go mad on it. It's more for, you know, I would say maybe 10% or maybe 20% of your portfolio if you're really, really keen. Um, it's that sort of area. Okay, and then you've got um, another sort of in the alternative sphere, and this is um, infrastructure funds. Yes. So this is an idea of just trying to, to get into an asset that's a bit different. Um, so infrastructure, you know, it's, it's building the, 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 the power lines, um, the utilities, you know, uh, improving the sewers and so forth. Uh, it's communications, uh, you know, internet stuff, building, you know, the improved 5G fiber, the fiber that we're getting, you know, now all over the country and building the 5G mobile network, all that kind of thing. Uh, and that investing in that kind of infrastructure, it delivers decent returns, nothing spectacular. In fairness, you can get exposure to infrastructure by investing in some infrastructure companies that are listed on the stock market. So infrastructure is part of the stock market, but you can, I think, boost up your exposure uh, from infrastructure. So you get more exposure than you would if you were just focusing on a, on a FTSE 100 tracker. And there are infrastructure funds. Uh, some of them just invest in infrastructure companies, but there are also infrastructure funds that direct in invest directly into individual infrastructure uh, funds. Um, and both of them are uh, infrastructure projects rather. So avoiding the companies and going direct to the projects, either approach makes fine. Uh, one fund that I, I like the look of is 3i Infrastructure. 3i have a long, long track record as, as a good investor in infrastructure and private equity. Uh, this uh, trust invests in companies that own infrastructure. Uh, yeah, and I think it's a great way just to get that extra diversification, push up your exposure to infrastructure, which should deliver decent returns, but not amazing returns, and, should, and shouldn't fall as much when markets are choppy. So it's the idea of delivering okay growth, not fantastic growth, at a relatively low risk. Ed, all good stuff. All right, well, let's let's finish off with a little crystal ball moment then and just ask you how you're generally feeling about the year ahead in markets because we saw a bit of anxiety growing, I think, towards the end of the year. And as, as uh, you know, I think markets quite reasonably were worrying about Omicron, particularly here in the, the UK, you know, combined with um, supply chain issues and various things like that. So how do you think, how are things now as we're sitting looking forward? Yeah, you've, you've saved your toughest question till last, Marcus, definitely. Um, so as you say, rightly, yes, markets have clearly been a bit nervous over the last um, few weeks. Looking, so looking ahead to 2022, the big issues are, well, yes, could COVID get worse again? Probably not. You never know. Uh, and then it's inflation, which is linked to the supply chain issues you, you mentioned and, and also potentially rising rates. So you've got a lot of people out there now who are very concerned about inflation and really, you know, we've seen a, we've seen a, a jump already in inflation. And the question is, will that jump be sustained and will inflation go higher? A lot of people think it will, if they're right, that we're going to see significant rises in interest rates faster than the market was expecting two or three months ago. That'll be bad news for the technology stocks, as we've already discussed, but it'll be bad news for other parts of the market as well, just making stocks and shares a less attractive investment. So that's a big issue to think about. My personal view, actually, I'm still relatively relaxed about inflation. My view is it probably isn't going to rise as much as some fear, and it won't be, uh, we won't see this sustained long-term rise in inflation that many people fear. I could be wrong, but my core view is, yeah, actually, we shouldn't be, we don't need to worry too much about inflation, things are going to come good here. And if I'm right, that's undoubtedly good news for markets, undoubtedly good news for markets. Other things to think about, well, I guess the, the, the most worrying thing for me um, is, is, ge is geopolitical, basically the risk of either Russia invading Ukraine or China invading Taiwan. I'm not saying that either option is likely, but it is possible. You know, the risk of either is now is, is higher than 1%, sadly. So we do need to at least think about it. I suspect, actually, bluntly, if Russia invaded Ukraine, um, actually, in the end, 
Biden and, and, and NATO wouldn't kick up too much of a fuss and markets wouldn't worry too much. But I think China, Taiwan potentially would worry markets more and could be more worrying uh, just in general terms for the world. So that's one thing to think about. But as ever in all these things, if you're a long term investor, you'll be able to ride through any falls that might be caused by a China, Taiwan thing. And, and you still do fine, probably probably if you're investing over 10 years or longer um so and you know we're probably not going to get a war in either place but it's it's something you need to bear in mind so and then the final issue is just the fact that american or many american technology stocks just reached valuations that were clearly too high towards the end of last year in my view anyway and i think what um you know, as you said, Marcus, I think December's stock market falls were at least partly triggered by Omicron. And I think that perhaps got some investors to think more seriously, is now the time to get out of US tech stocks? I think at least, you know, the, the US, the, the, the share prices of US tech stocks were partly being driven by people who really believe the tech stock story that is there. You know, there are people at Tesla's now valued at $3 trillion. There are people out there who think, yes, Tesla is going to dominate the market for electric cars. It's going to dominate the market for solar panels. It's going to dominate the market for driverless cars. Uh, and it's going to provide, and even the other car manufacturers, they're going to use software from Tesla anyway. And with all of those things coming true, then Tesla's worth $3 trillion. I don't think those things are going to come true. But you've also got investors who say, well, Tesla's a pretty good company. It's not worth $3 trillion, but it's a pretty good company. And the share price is going to keep them going up so much i'm just going to hang in there for the ride i would be crazy to sell a stock that's gone up so much regardless of what the underlying valuation says and you've i think you've had those sort of nervous investors holding lots of big of lots of us tech stocks across the board and when they see markets falling they get nervous they get worried they think okay now's the time to cash in i've had a good run let's lock in my profits and i think we saw some of that happening uh, in the last month or so, triggered by Omicron and also by the inflation concerns. And we may see more of that this year. And that may give tech stocks another significant push down. And that's why going back to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, that's why I think that's probably the area of the market to avoid or at least reduce exposure to in 2022. Okay. Ed Bauscher, thanks very much. Pleasure, Marcus. Pleasure. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. Please don't forget to, you can read Ed's article in the new Get Investing magazine. You'll find that link in the bio. Um, share it around, please do, as well as share this pod. We're always trying to grow the audience. You'll also notice as well that we've got some sort of special pods that come out. They're called Ideas for Your Portfolio. And this is where we, it's a series where we, speak directly to fund managers to talk to them about the funds or investments or whatever it is that they're running to to really get underneath the surface of the strategy hear it from the horse's mouth and find out what they're trying to do for investors so i think they're really interesting so just keep an eye an eye out for those ideas for your um, portfolio but apart from that until next time goodbye goodbye